0: Remember, as we were beginning the chapter, uh, Romans 8, I pointed out to you that this is one of the greatest chapters on the Holy Spirit. So please do turn there then, Romans 8. Today we want to consider verse 9 through 11. But I request that we read verse 1 through 11. Romans 8. Verse 1 to 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By setting his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin,
1: the spirit
0: his life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's a reading of God's Word. Rarely do I make or open my sermon with a political commentary. But this morning, I will. Kenyans rose up early to vote on the 9th of August. A week later, the electoral commission split into two factions with the chairman, Mr. Wafula Chebukati announcing Dr. William Samoy Ruto as the president-elect. And the other faction led by the vice chair with three other commissioners disowned the results as OP. And now about 20 days later, the country is still gripped In anxiety with the matter now in the Supreme Court, the results being contested. Ours as Christians is to pray and wait, knowing that the sovereign God is still sovereign, knowing that He gives the kingdoms of men to whomever He wills. God gives. This kingdom, ours is not a kingdom as such, but a nation to whoever man he wills. Now, I open up with that statement because of that word opaque. And this is what I want to tell you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Our God is not
1: opaque.
0: Our Christian faith is not opaque. The gospel is not opaque. The scriptures are not opaque. The salvation offered in the gospel is not opaque. And this will be demonstrated By the clarity of the assurance offered in the gospel we proclaim. Christ we proclaim the name above every name. For all creation, every nation, God's salvation is through the Son. There is no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved. No one can stand before the media and say that the faith that we believe is opaque. Amen. We know that for sure. Christians, therefore, must not be opaque. Christians must not be opaque. We must be open letters to be read by all. And so, as we continue to build the foundation of our assurance, of faith from the text before us the opening statement of this chapter tells us that very clearly that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation Christians are not sitting in anxiety because of the great day because we know That we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and each one will have to give an account of what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And there is there will be no opaqueness on that day. It will be either you have done evil, go to condemnation, go to hell, or you have trusted in Jesus Christ, and therefore it will be said you will be saying, Christ's your robe and your righteousness. That's my beauty. And your righteousness is my glorious dress. So when we read that opening statement, then we know that what we believe and how we live is clear as noonday sun. We know whom we have believed and we are persuaded that he is able to keep us and to keep that we, which he has committed to us until that great day. There is a concrete assurance, both at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter, because the chapter ends In verse 37, with a very, very, very clear statement. A question is asked. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all these? Who shall bring in a charge against God's elect? Who?
1: It is God who justifies.
0: It is God who justifies. So who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord? What's the answer? No one. No one. And so various alternatives are provided there: shall tribulation or distress. Or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or so no 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 please top the lists because I know in all these things we believers we Christians are more than conquerors through him who loved us because I am sure that neither death nor life, neither dangers. I mean, neither angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can you tell me then that that kind of faith is can be anything less than clear? Statements that would give firm assurance in what we believe. Yes? That's why we sing. We know whom we've believed. That's why we talk with the confidence that there's no other religion that offers salvation to man. With all due respect to the Islamic faith, it cannot give assurance like that. With all the the things that they have to say and their deeds and all that they say, there's no assurance of faith. None. None.
1: Pull out any, any
0: human religion and show me even a thread of assurance in what they believe. We know that only true Christianity can impart true assurance of our salvation. The religions of works cannot guarantee assurance of salvation. They cannot. Roman Catholicism cannot. Planting a seed cannot. It cannot. And so this last week there was a RemaFest. And really what they wanted was to reap money from people. And that's what they did. I can assure you, empty words were poured out in Kasarani. So much of empty words were poured out in the so-called Ramaphest. And people filled up their ears with those empty promises. But I can assure you one thing. All those speakers, because it was a gathering of apostles, wasn't it? All those so-called apostles went home smiling all the way to the bath they did all religions of works produces no assurance only justification by faith alone in Christ alone by God's grace alone can give assurance of salvation and make believers Confident, So this chapter encourages us to live here knowing I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which he has committed until that great day. So the text before us gives us facts. About who a Christian is. The things we are going to learn today. Are true. Of every Christian. Who has ever lived. And who will ever live. When any of these facts are missing. Then there is a big problem. Because. All Christians have the following five facts. True. Of them please lay them out so that we all may be on the same page first of all the verse the opening verse tells us you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit you're not in the flesh but in the spirit oh and for your information if you do not have the spirit of Christ then it's because you do not belong to him if you're not spirit-filled You hear that? If you do not have the spirit of God dwelling in you, it's because you're not a Christian. It's those who are spirit-filled who are believers. And then thirdly, the body of a Christian is dead to sin. We'll find out that. And then fourthly, the spirit of a Christian is alive to righteousness. And finally, God will give life even to your mortal body. Now, you realize that up until now, Paul has been talking of kind of uh, giving general statements. But right now, he turns to his audience and he tells them, you, you who are listening to me, you who are reading this, listen. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Supposing the spirit of God dwells in you. He says here two things. One, you're not in the flesh. And two, you are in the spirit. It is a a fact then that a Christian is not in the flesh. And this fact is repeated over and over again. Because you must not miss it. What does it mean to be in the flesh? He has already explained it, but he will do it again. Now, I already explained it, but I will repeat. It means that the person of the flesh is not a Christian because he is controlled and led by the flesh. he is controlled and led by what the flesh
1: but a christian is not like that
0: a christian is not in the flesh he is not led by the passions of the flesh he does not gratify the desires of the flesh in a christian all christians are not In the flesh, you do not act according to every craving, or do you?
1: Yes, if you're offered
0: alcohol by your friend. And perhaps even felt like you should take that alcohol and that it would be impolite to decline. What should come to your mind is this. I am not in the flesh to act according to the whims of the flesh. We Christians not act according to our passions, or do we? Just because someone provoked you to anger doesn't mean that the next thing would be to slap them. Just because someone insulted you does not mean that you will also insult them. Because the one whom we follow, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Paul urges Galatians, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5:16, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or will you? In other words, you will not. Your will will not be agreeable to submitting. To that craving or to that appetite or to that desire. Why must a Christian not let his fleshly appetite lead him? Because the Bible says. There in Galatians 5.17. The desires of the flesh. Are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit. Are against the flesh because these are opposed. They are opposed to each other. So, when you have that craving to sin, then know that your spirit is under threat. When a temptation comes upon you, and the, and the promises of the temptation are dangled like the proverbial carrot before your own eyes.
1: They know for sure
0: that you fall into the temptation and you put your spirit in jeopardy. You, you risk. So believers must reject fleshly appetites and cravings and seek to modify the deeds of the flesh, the passions of the flesh. The flesh wants to strangle all spiritual life in your soul. And the flesh hates spiritual things. Flesh hates spiritual things. So, just to underscore that fact, you struggle to eat the bread of life. Right? You struggle to read the Bible. But you don't struggle to grab, you know, piece of bread and drink your chai or coffee. You don't find that bothersome. You don't find any trouble in wanting to eat any food to feed your body. You enjoy watching a movie, but you get bored at church listening to sermons. You keep up with your work schedule, but do not keep up with your ministry to the saints. You enjoy the company of your friends more than the company of the saints. You are more diligent in reading for your exams and are more scared about failing your exams than you are scared of hell. Please remember, you're not in the flesh. You're not. You are in the spirit. You however, are in the spirit. This does not mean that Christians are in the right spirit. This is not to say that you're in the right state or mood. It is to say that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. For Christians are in the spirit. The the spirit of God dwells in them and they are in him. And so controlled by him, the spirit. So when you're provoked to anger, what does the spirit of God tell you? He gives you a fortitude to control your tempers. When you're insulted, when, it, when, when, when your mind is buffering, wanting to pick up an insult and howl back, you remember, no, 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 I mustn't do that. The Spirit of God is at work. You patiently endure. When you are attacked with hatred, you remember, the Spirit tells you to respond with love. When you find yourself in an environment where there is strife, you become an agent of peace. If you are in the Spirit. If, there's a big if there then you must show that the Spirit of God is stopping you from indulging in the flesh.
1: Some of you, brethren, have been seriously sinned against. And I'm privy to some of the things that go on.
0: But I see God helping you to exercise control. And you do not act in fleshly manner. And I praise God for that.
1: Now, there are times when you would admit to your shame. You gave in. And uh, you, you did things that you regretted later, isn't it? True?
0: But again, the spirit of God enabled you to repent and you are not at peace. While you know that there are certain things that you said, you should not have said. There are some actions that you did that you should not have done. You, you go back to the Lord and plead for his mercy and for forgiveness. The flesh will not help you to do that. The flesh tells you, yeah, he also did that. He... He said that, he did that, he didn't say that, he didn't. And you're thinking, I was just, I was on, what could I have done? The flesh will tell you to do that. But the spirit of God will give you no peace until you deal with the matter. You go back to the person and in humility, you say, I said this to my child. please forgive me. If you're in the spirit, then you bear the fruit of the spirit. You can't bear any other fruit. There should be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. When there is none of these parts of the fruit of the Spirit that is available to be eaten at the opportune time, then everything else does not matter. Because you will go before the Lord and tell him, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. Remember the sermon last Sunday? I prophesied in your name. I was an apostle in your name. I participated in the Rema fest in your name. And you will be told, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. I never knew
1: you. But then you who is
0: a believer must put on these things, put on humility. And uh, you, you apologize, you repent, you confess your sins, you turn around. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. If you are not in the flesh, it is a fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And you will consider this shortly. It is a fact that you're not in the flesh, but it's also a fact that you are in the spirit, which is your position. What a remarkable assurance. What a remarkable assurance do we have in this statement. It is a fact that the spirit dwells with all those who are not in the flesh. There is no alternative. The spirit either dwells in you or it doesn't. He, he doesn't. He doesn't come and visit you like the way you can visit a hotel. You know, you, uh, a place that you like or a pub. You don't live in a park, do you? You you visit. And some of us have been uh, very unhappy that the Uhuru Park is still not open. Um, But we don't live there even though we may like it. The Holy Spirit is not like that when it comes to indwelling. When he comes to regenerate, he stays permanently. And he does not leave. Because you see, secondly, if you do not have the spirit of Christ, then you're not, you do not belong to him. You don't belong to him if you lack the His spirit. For so the Bible says, anyone who does not belong, does not have the spirit of Christ, does not belong to Christ. Full stop. You know, there is no, there is no beating around the bush here. The Spirit of Christ is a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's the same as the Spirit of God. It's not talking about the demeanor of Christ. You know, there are people who say the Spirit of Christ here is talking about having that spirit or the mood or the demeanor of Jesus Christ. And some would even look at uh, someone like, uh, uh, like uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Say, yeah, he had the spirit of Christ. See how he went around doing good. No, that's not what the Bible is talking about here. The Bible is talking about the third person of the Trinity. He is called in this text, the spirit of God in verse 9. And now he's called the Spirit of Christ. Because you see, the Lord said that he will send the helper, the comforter, the advocate who proceeds from the Father and who proceeds from the Son. Even the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of Christ, therefore, is the Holy Spirit. And you notice that these three terms, the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, are used interchangeably here. To mean, this, the, to mean one and the same thing, to refer to the same person, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And so to have the Spirit of God is to have the Spirit of Christ. And it's to have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible says, if you do not have him, then that's a sure proof that you do not belong to Christ. And anyone means, what does anyone mean? Anyone means anyone. If you do not have the Holy Spirit of Christ, it doesn't matter who you are. If you are the archbishop, And you do not have the spirit of Christ. Then you do not belong to him. If you call yourself an apostle. Even chief apostle. And you do not have the spirit of Christ. You don't belong to Christ. And if you're not. If you do not belong to Christ. Then you are not. A Christian. You're not. You're going to hell. Anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit is going to hell. Is the point here. Because he does not belong to the realm, to the kingdom of Christ. He does not belong to his kingdom. Because those who are without the spirit, though they may be archbishops or cardinals or even popes or chief apostles, they don't belong to Christ. All unbelievers, all unchristians, christians do not belong to Christ because they are without the Holy Spirit. Clearly, all Muslims do not belong to Christ. All Hindus, all traditionalists do not have the Holy Spirit and therefore they do not belong to Christ. They do not belong to the kingdom of Christ. They do not have the spirit of Christ. And so they do not belong to him. There are people who teach. There are people who teach. That it is possible for a true believer. To be without the Holy Spirit. They think that a sinner. Can be saved. Without the intervention. Of the spirit. How mistaken can they be. Earlier in the the distinctive doctrine class. We saw that. Sinners. Are slaves, sinners are blind, sinners or unbelievers are dead. I mean, that that condition alone tells you that the Spirit of God is not at work there. But they teach that people can be saved without the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit will come when the the preacher decides that it's time for you to tap. The second blessing, to have the second blessing experience, and so they say, We will have a service for the, uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit service. And you have seen this kind of services advertised. And then you come to the meeting, and they say, If you're there and you want to receive the Holy Spirit, come forward, come forward, come, we'll pray for you by the impartation of our hands. And and people, because they are ignorant of the scriptures, and they are gullible, I mean gullible to the extent that they will be told, give so much money if you want to receive a full measure of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead to do that. Oh dear, people just read. I don't know how they read the Bible. I don't know whether they read at all, even. Because preachers have the audacity to ask their hearers to go to be prayed for so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. And that the proof that they've had the experience of the Holy Spirit is that they will speak in gibberish. And that they will also train you to speak in this little kind of a language. Well, it's no language at all, is it? I mean, they do not even know what they are saying themselves. How can that be language? But people give money to receive that. How can they be so gullible? This verse is teaching that for you to have been born again, for you to have been saved in the first place, it is because of the Holy Spirit who gave you spiritual life to otherwise dead. Seener. because you cannot be regenerated or be made alive in christ without the spirit the spirit gives spiritual life so that you believe in jesus christ it is the spirit who washes us using the word and he has given uh, he, he has given us what we call sanctification continues to work in us to make us more Christ-like. And it's the Holy Spirit who seals us to guarantee our inheritance and to make us to be heavenly bowed. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, we cannot well serve the saints in the body of Christ. So clearly... We can say, without the Holy Spirit, thirdly, the body, that is, the believer's body, is dead because of sin. So the Bible says, but if Christ is in you, suppose Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. We've already seen that the spirit is in you. And now, this verse tells us that Christ is in you. So the spirit of God is in you. And and Christ himself is in you. Because Christ is in all believers giving us spiritual vitality, leading to salvation. You cannot be a Christian without the work of Christ in you. And it is not only that Christ is in us, but the Bible also teaches that we are in Christ. Think about that. Christ is in us and we ourselves are in Christ at the same time suppose you're in the spirit then consequently you are in christ for it is not possible to have to be in uh, in the spirit without being in christ salvation kills the body though is what you're reading here it kills the body to the cravings and the appetites to sin So what does it mean that the body is dead because of sin? The word body here must be taken to mean our physical frame and does not mean flesh or the sinful nature. Why? Because of what the next verse says about the body. The next verse adds another word, an an adjective to describe this body. And it adds the word mortal body. So so the context shows that this is a reference to the physical body. That is the flesh and the blood, which the Bible says cannot inherit eternal life in 1 Corinthians 15. This is to say, or this is to mean, our ability to think or reason as a function of the brain, the body of the believers is basically, as you know, when you look at a believer, and you look at their bodies, they're basically the same as the body of any unbeliever. You know, both have similar organs, which have similar functions, etc. We go see the same doctors and are given the same medication when our bodies are healed. So what? what is this then that your body is dead? What does that mean? See, this is talking about it from God the Creator's position. Well, the body of a non-believer is alive to sin and indulges in sin, the body of a Christian is dead because of sin. That's a fact stated here. In other words, the believer's body must not be interested in sinning. Because Christ is in you. The spirit of God It dwells in you. A believer does not rationalize any sinful conduct in his life. Instead, he seeks to get rid of it. So if you've been sitting down and and you're plotting how you're going to sin and you rationalize and you say, well, lying is not so bad. By the way, even Rahab lied. You know, getting myself a second wife is not so bad. After all, who was more spiritual than Abraham? You know, you go to, there are people who go to the Bible to dig out those kind of, you know, and they rationalize. They they, they justify their sinful, their, their sinful conduct. Please don't mess up yourself like that, rationalizing sin and justifying yourself when you sin. It's bad enough that you sinned. It's awful worse
1: if you justify it.
0: It is for this reason, Paul said earlier in Romans 6, verse 3 to 4, do you not know? This is something that then people would be ignorant about. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into? What were we baptized into? Yes? We were baptized into his life. Right? You know, you're looking at me instead of looking at your Bibles. When you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death. That's where it began. You were not just baptized into his death, but actually you were even buried with him. By baptism into death. Why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life.
1: But this is not,
0: this is not a natural condition. Okay? This is not a natural condition. It is a supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit to kill your body. You know, how many times do you pass by places that you ought not to be there, but I'm not going to name that? You can find yourself caught up. How many times do you pass by places where sin is being glorified and you have no desire whatsoever to participate in that debauchery? How many times? That shows that your body is dead. Because of that sin. You know when you pass by a pub. You don't say. Oh by the way. There is a pub here. I could grab one for the road. You don't think like that. So the Lord. Reorients our appetites. Our buds our desires, our ambitions, our plans, so that our bodies are dead because of sin. So when you see a woman who is dressed scantily, you don't say, oh, and by the way, that's very fashionable. Or do you? It's as if you didn't see that dress, no matter what anyone else might think. You are dead, so to speak. In those kind of fashions, and I hope that that's a case. You don't look at them and say, "Yeah, yeah, they look, they look good," and go on to buy them. When a professing believer wants to keep his body alive to sin, that is to continue to indulge in sin, all sins, then you do not need to wonder whether you are saved. You know, you, you sit down with some people and uh, they themselves are wondering if they are saved because of the kind of sins that they indulge in. You don't need to worry, you just need to repent and be saved. Such a person is alive to sin and thus not in Christ and not indwelt by the Spirit. Let's move on. The fifth fact about a Christian. The spirit is life because of righteousness. That's the second part of verse 10. Let me say that this is the hardest part of this text. The the, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, commentators would not agree about whether it is the Spirit with capital S, that is referring to the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Man. And so if you look at uh, the ESV, English Standard Version, which goes along with the authorized version, they translate the Spirit with capital S, referring to the Holy Spirit. But uh, New American Standard Bible, renders that phrase, spirit is alive. Now, there are problems both ways. There are problems both ways. If we go the ESV way, the statement said earlier in the first part of verse 10 is kind of incomplete. When he says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, then it goes that the Holy Spirit is life because of righteousness. It doesn't quite fit. Because you'd be asking, okay, the body is dead. What about the spirit? What about, you know, the second part of the person? What about the spirit or what about the song? Is it dead as well? Now that answer is not quite provided because then instead we are told the spirit, if you go by the ESV and the, and the authorized version and many other translators, mostly have taken it that way. But if you look at it as referring to the second part of the human being, that is the spirit, then you have a problem with the verb because you see NASB as added a verb to say the spirit is alive, but the problem is that the, the original does not have that word as a verb, it is a noun. So, how do you say your own spirit is life? You can't. So then you end up rendering spirit as a Holy Spirit. Or you, you fall into that problem with NASB, which renders which has to change the noun into a verb to accommodate to accommodate that idea that it is referring to the spirit. But I think the bigger problem is with NASB, because it's actually changing a noun into a verb. So I would go with my ESV, yeah, I'll stick with my ESV, even though there are problems. It makes more sense. It's more literal. It's not translation. Uh, it's not interpretation. It's simply reading what is plain there. Yes, it's true that the body is dead, but the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who, is, who has already been called the spirit of life, Do you know where he's been called the spirit of life? Verse 2. The Holy Spirit in chapter 8 verse 2 is called the spirit of life who has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So if this verse is dealing with the spirit of a person who is saved and having begun with the body, he now goes to the spirit. Uh, How can you say that one's own spirit is life? Life, I mean, that can only be said of God. So clearly then, this is a reference to the spirit of God. So this statement must be understood to be a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in believers. For the spirit gives us life, since he is the spirit of life, from verse 2. Because of the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed without the the initial operation and work of the Holy Spirit in a believer, there would be no righteousness of Christ imputed on anyone. So he is life because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us freely. He is the one who applies the work of Christ, all the work of Christ. May it be the the, the giving of Christ's righteousness. May it be the atonement of Christ for our salvation. It is the Holy Spirit who applies it. Now, yes, Paul has already told us in verse 6 that to set our mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is, is life and peace. So I think that, He is presenting the same concept here, using different words to convey the same idea. How is the spirit life? He answers this question in verse 11, where he says that, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body, Through his life who dwells in you. Same concept. Same concept. So how is the spirit life? Two ways. By the application of the work of Christ in you. And on that last day, he will do what? He will raise that dead body and give it resurrection Body will be given resurrection body by the Spirit. Clearly, we are very privileged people, aren't we? See the eternal love of God the Father in choosing in choosing us in Christ, electing us in the beloved, giving us Christ, whom He sent for our redemption. Behold the love of Christ and His amazing grace, not only working out our righteousness in being born under the law, but also in dying for our sins and sending the Holy Spirit to us who proceeds from the Father. And the Holy Spirit comes and applies this redemption purchased by Christ freely. So we are very blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, in the heavenlies. You know, That that phrase in Ephesians, that word heavenly places is provided by translators, should just be content to, to read. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in the realm of heaven, to the praise of his Lord. And lastly, and I will not belabor this point. Because this is also a bit technical. God will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit to in- who dwells in you. Having the Holy Spirit is having the full redemption. Because the work that the father began, the work that he planned in the eternity past... That work was accomplished by who? By Christ. And that that work of the electing love of the Father and the accomplished work of Christ is applied to you individually in your lifetime. By who? By the Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit never leaves. Having dwelt in you, he continues to work in you the work of sanctification. Preparing you for glory. But he must do one thing before glory. What is it? He must give you a body. A glorified body. He must, the way to put it uh, is to say that he must transform your mortal body to become immortal. Immortal. So you see then, the completion of the work of salvation is in a sense, the giving of the spirit to dwell in you. And so if you do not have the spirit of Christ, you do not belong to him. He is a seal. He is a helper. He is a sanctifier. He is the paraclete. But what is very interesting is that This is a very, very unique verse. Verse 11. It's very unique. It is the only place where the resurrection of Christ is associated with the Holy Spirit. Everywhere else we hear of resurrection of Christ is to do with the Father. Like for example, if if we could very easily go to the book of Romans, you see in chapter 4 verse 24, it is the Father. Who raised Christ. Chapter 6 verse 4, it is Christ. Chapter 8 verse 11 is the odd one out. Why? Because Paul wants to assure us that having spirit is the same as having Christ and having the Father. And the triune God is not divided. And so this is how we, are, we become partakers of the divine nature. So the verse here gives a strong assurance. If you are converted, truly saved, then the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And when that time comes, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who is in you, he will also do the same to you. will raise your mortal body. And you may die now, but remember, the spirit will still come and collect your body, wherever it will be. You may have been blown by a grenade into small pieces. He will get those cells together, glorify you. Back into the soul. He will make that mortal body you have to become immortal. You don't need to be so worried about death now. However you die. Seeing that the Spirit is alive, is life in you. Seeing that the Spirit of God is life in you. They, they may burn you. And they may even come back later like they did with the bones of John Wycliffe. And, and, and gather the, the, the bones and burn them. And take them to River Thames. And scatter those ashes and say, But the Spirit who is life appears. At that day of glorification will ensure that all those cells will be brought back together into one body glorified with your soul. That's so what this verse is telling us. And so it's amazing to know that a day is coming when this mortal body, which is perishable, will be raised imperishable. A day will come when this dishonorable mortal body will be raised honorable a day will come when this mortal body which is weak will be raised in power this mortal body which is natural will put on imperishable and be raised spiritual or how do you read First Corinthians fifteen, verse mm-hmm. 40, forty-two to forty-four? How do you read it? Do you say, "Yeah, yeah, it's very nice reading about these things." Yeah, what will this? What will be the people who will be enjoying these kind of things? Is that is that how you read your Bible? Do you not say, "Yeah, yeah, this is me. This is me." A time will come when my own body. Though right now there might be cancer or there might be diabetes or there might be high blood pressure. There will come a time when my body will not be affected by these things because the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, who dwells in me. Or who is the you there in verse 11? Is it someone else? Yes? Yes? It is me. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, who dwells in me. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to my mortal body. Through his spirit who dwells in me. Undoubtedly, the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on the immortality. Verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15. On that resurrection day. On that resurrection day. My friends and my brothers and sisters in Christ. You may not like this. But actually the good news. That that a day is coming when you will die. And we will come to your funeral. I also will die and you will come to mine. Okay? Depending on who will die faster. But this, this one thing
1: is for sure. When I will be dead,
0: I will be resting, waiting for this great day. Right? I, I will be resting. I will not be walking like you. I will not be sweating like you. I will be just resting, waiting for that day when my body will be glorified and Christ Jesus will show that indeed all these promises that he has given me in the scriptures are true. This is something that we look forward to at the coming of our Savior. What a glorious day that will be. So, in conclusion, we are debtors. We are debtors, not to the flesh by any means to live according to the flesh. We are us to mercy and grace alone. We, we cannot live any other way. We, we live to please God who so loved us and gave us such wonderful blessings. And so we pray. Our prayer is this, breathe, oh breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us fight thy promised rest. Take away the love of sinning, alpha and omega. Be end of faith as is beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. Let's rise up to sing to the Lord.